1: The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and
0: order yours at Acura.com. We're back, EJ. Football is entertaining again. I think we got through the dark times of Week Seven, and Week Eight came to play. We got entertaining primetime games. Uh, we got some like really awesome, you know, 10 a.m. at least 10 a.m. for us uh, Sunday games. Gone are the days of blowouts and just and, and just garbage. We're back to good football. We had a long streak for a long time. Took a dip, and now I think we're back to peak NFL weirdness. Uh, We have a lot to talk about this week. Week 8 was a doozy. We just had the trade deadline happen today, so we're recording uh, the night of Tuesday now that we've seen all the trades go through and all the big news. Uh, We have some uh, really unfortunate news to talk about out of Vegas, which we don't entirely have all the information on that, but that also broke today. But a hell of a lot to go over in a very eventful week 8. Before we get into it, uh, how are you doing and what are you drinking?
1: i'm good i rebounded too uh i survived we get back to interesting football uh like you said tons to talk about most of it positive uh but we're going to talk about the goat a little bit later so i brought a beer on that actually comes with a little plastic goat it's like a little (laughs) goat ornament um and uh this is a shout out to our german fans as well this is eyinger uh celebrator it's a double block this is from the bottom of the bavarian alps been there the brewery's been there since 1878 um great german style but i'm gonna crack that open and then of course i got my shot for later but uh what are you sipping on while we
0: talk about all this uh return to fine football i've actually had that before Uh, it's good stuff but uh it wasn't in america i had it in zurich oh you just had to didn't you was on I've tap. had your beer.
1: <laughs> I've had your beer on tap, not in a bottle, and oh yes,
0: in Europe. I remember that because I saw I saw the little uh, the little goat on the tap. I <laughs> give was me like, the okay. Give, give me, me the me goat, goat piss.
1: Yeah, no, it's wonderful <laughs> stuff. Ah, uh, dark malty rich is the way they describe it. If you've had a Bach or double Bach, it's great stuff. Six seven by volume, so very drinkable. Perfect, like fall winter beer. Good stuff. What do you
0: have? Uh, I've got. Glen Morangie tonight. Uh, hmm. If you're familiar with Glen, Glen, Glen yeah, excuse me, Glen Marangi, if I could actually pronounce it, I, I haven't even drank any of it yet. Uh, this is the Nectar <laughs> Dior, so it's their uh, Saturnus cac- cask finish, my favorite, Glenn Um And uh, this was actually given to me uh, as a gift by a film room subscriber, and so I I drink it whenever possible, but I try not to go through it because uh, anytime somebody gives me a bottle. I save it for special occasions, and I think this is uh, one hell of a special occasion to celebrate the week that was in the NFL. Um, I want to thank, also speaking of supporters, Matt and Steve, for uh, jumping on the Patreon, supporting the show this week, becoming our new patrons. We appreciate you guys and believing in us. And uh, also a reminder, our first giveaway for uh, all bootleg patrons is going to be next week. We're giving away a hoodie, same one that I'm wearing right now. So if you want a chance to win a bootleg hoodie of whatever size you want, all patrons between now and next Tuesday, which is November if I check my November 9th. If you're a patron before November 9th, uh, we're going to put your name in a little randomizer. You get a chance to win a hoodie. Uh, or if you want to buy a hoodie, all patrons also get discounts on hoodies as well. So maybe you'll get two. Uh, with that being said, though, let's get into the news of the week. We're going to start off with, uh, honestly, a, a truly awful story out of Vegas that just broke today. I remember... You know, the, the rumors kind of started on Twitter, and I reached out to some of our friends that cover the Raiders, and I was like, hey, have you heard anything about this? Uh, and they were kind of working to confirm things, and then it broke for real on TMZ. Uh, and that was the the Henry Rugg story uh, about 3.40 a.m. this morning. Um, was unfortunately involved in a fatal car accident. Um, there were reports that that, you know, he was impaired, but that hasn't Necessarily been confirmed, so we're not going to dive too deep into it because we don't have all the information confirmed. He has been charged uh, with DUI resulting in a death, so that's at least what we know for sure has happened. He's he's been charged. Um, Just tragic. A 23 year old woman has lost her life in a in a truly horrific way, and um, you know my heart goes out to to the victim, the victim's families. um, You know to also rugs family uh as well because this is this is a heavy thing for them to deal with too and i i don't really know where we go from here um i i hope that there was no impairment involved but we don't know for sure either way um i just hope that the victim's family can find some sort of peace in the future because this is this is really one of the most horrific things that a family can go through and i'm really sorry that they have to
1: Yeah, we're going to wait until more of the facts come out. It doesn't look good. Um, We'll leave it at that. And look, we drink beer on this show all the time. We drink whiskey on the show all the time. We're sitting in our basements. um, When we're out in Vegas and we're drinking, we're not driving. We're walking or we're taking an Uber. And we'd urge you to do the same thing no matter who you are. Um, It's just a better choice. um, And it can have some serious consequences. In this case, the most serious consequences. So we'll probably touch on it next week when all the facts have come to light or at least as many are going to be made public as possible. Um, Terrible situation. Nobody should die for people going out and having fun. So we'll see what happens and how it settles out next week. But from us to you, be safe, make safe choices, surround yourself with people that make those same safe choices so that we can just... I'll keep each other safe and, and keep getting to watch football and doing the things that we all love to do, and so can everybody else.
0: Could not uh, have said it better myself. So we'll, we'll touch on this again next week once we know more, but I just wanted to lead off the show and basically say, like, don't drink and drive, regardless of what actually happened. Please don't drink and drive. It's never a good idea. Um, and there's really no easy way to transition to to the three-up segment this week, but I'm uh, by God, I'm going to do it. Uh, We're going to start off three up this week with Patriots uh, versus the Chargers, and to me this was a hell of a game, and this, even more so than the Cowboys game, proved that the Patriots are a real team that will likely make the playoffs and be a threat in the playoffs to whoever they play against, because this team is like two plays away from being six and two, and that's with a rookie quarterback. Like, if Damian Harris doesn't fumble week one, which you and I were watching in the, in the Caesar Sportsbook Live, very well could have won that game. Like, it's so easy for me to imagine this team being right at the top of the AFC standings, you know, tied with Buffalo, basically. Um, so the, the Patriots are for real. The defense is great. The offensive line's kicking ass. The run game's kicking ass. But more importantly, Mac Jones, in his first, what, seven, eight starts here, Unbelievably efficient, has now gone two straight games without making any mistakes, like zero turnover worthy plays. He's been accurate, he's been decisive. He's been, dare I say, as advertised. And, you know, there was a lot of vitriol thrown around about Mac Jones. Like you and I said, Mac Jones is the top three, no way. But we also said, Mac Jones was better than every quarterback in last year's class not named Joe Burrow. Like, we had him graded above Tua. And it was just because of the fact that this quarterback class was so utterly ridiculous that he was in the QB4, QB5 range. And we're on record as saying that. So we we definitely liked Mac Jones a lot more than a lot of people. We just didn't think that he was a top three pick given the other options available. But even though you and I liked Mac Jones, I don't think either one of us thought that this is where we would be after eight weeks, where he looks like the best rookie quarterback or at at worst he looks like the quarterback in this rookie class that you can win the most games with because he's not turning it over he's moving the chains he's making plays when he needs to and he just he looks like a very solid solid starter which again for a a rookie starting in the first half of his first season is more than you could ever ask for
1: yeah I'd say this is the classic case of both things can be true And with Mac Jones, I don't know how much of this is unexpected for me. Not that much of it is unexpected because he looks like he did at Alabama. And maybe the unexpected part is, oh, well, there's a jump from college to the pros for everybody and he should have struggled for a bit longer. This guy was ready. And there was a lot of talk in the lead up to the draft about things that Mac Jones couldn't do. And it wasn't so much about Mac versus Mac. It was more about Mac compared to those around him, right? Well, Mac's not as mobile. Mac can't run the rollout game. Mac's arm is not as strong, right? It wasn't that he didn't have a functional NFL arm. Almost nobody said that. And if they did, they were wrong. And I think most people said that his arm is fine. That's the word you heard a lot with Mac Jones's arm. His arm is fine and his arm is fine. But he can do a lot of things, and he landed in a situation, and I will pound the table that situation is so incredibly important for young players especially, and especially on top of that, quarterbacks. They landed in a situation where they weren't so worried about what Mac Jones couldn't do. They knew what he could do, and they were going to build a system to maximize the things that he could do, and they have, and he is doing those. And that makes him the best rookie quarterback right now yes because he's up to speed faster than anybody else he is providing a level of play that is allowing his team and i do say team the whole thing offense defense special teams to win games he is not endangering them he is doing things on time and on schedule just like he did at alabama so we have a combination of a player a situation a scheme coming together that is allowing him to yes absolutely hands down right now in terms of results he is the best rookie quarterback will he be the best out of those quarterbacks four or five years from now Mm, maybe but there's i think less likelihood of that i'm not terribly surprised by what's happening right now because it looks a lot like mac jones at alabama and he landed in a situation where they were ready to let that happen right away they're letting it happen and it's working
0: I also want to touch on another rookie in this Patriots class that's really coming into his own. That's Christian Barmore. You had him as your runaway number one defensive tackle in this class. I had, like, a 1A, 1B situation with Levi Onuzurike, and, and, and Barmore as my, like, 1B. depending More system-dependent than anything between the two of them, but you were, like, all in on Barmore. And he's absolutely living up to that, in my opinion. He looks like a perfect fit for what they like in a defensive tackle, which is, do you need him to play five? Okay. You need him to play four-eye? Okay. Three, shade, true zero, whatever. He kind of does it all for them, and you're seeing the first step quickness. You're seeing the power in his punch, especially when they're running all these games because traditionally you know, New England likes to scheme up pressure with different stunts and everything like that, and he's been so valuable as the picker on those stunts where he just he just messes stuff up and then everybody else kind of cleans up um, and then if people kind of unstick from him early again he's so strong he can peel off and finish the job himself but he's he's really looking like a perfect fit for what they do and the early returns traditionally on defensive tackles like it takes a little while for like a, a like defensive tackle and tight end are probably like the two positions like non-quarterback positions where it's like, okay, like year two is when you really expect them to start making a big impact. Nah, we're like eight weeks in and he's making a big impact for what this defense needs him to do. So, uh, yeah, early returns on this Patriots draft class. Like, I feel like it's been a while since we've said that about a Patriots draft class where, like, they're just hitting on all their guys. But so far, yeah, they're hitting on all their guys.
1: Yeah, and again, it's it's the flip side of the ball, but the Patriots understood what Barmore was and what they wanted him to do for them. Not, hey, what are his skills NFL-wide or what are his deficiencies? No, like, how does he fit very solidly in the gap we have defined for him in the middle of our defensive line or, out as you said, as out to the end of the defensive line? And I said in pre-draft prep, I uttered a, a comparison at one point, and you know I hate comparisons because people – throw all kinds of roll, all kinds of extra things in there. And it can be very difficult to weed out what you really meant. Like, oh, it's the same body style or, oh, he has the same potential or, oh, he reminds me of when he does this thing. So you have to be very specific about comparisons. But I said Seymour's name. And you were mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, wait a minute now. And I was like, I'm not saying. It's like, saying, that's a Hall of Famer, sir. I'm like, not Let's calm sa- down. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying he's Richard Seymour right now. I'm saying there are things he does that remind me of a young Richard Seymour. And you were still like, I don't know. And when we were talking about it pre-show, you're like, he kind of looks like Seymour. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> mm, interesting that. Uh, and he does. They're moving him around. They use the athleticism. They use the strength. Um, Matt Judon is loving this, right? Because he knows that big guy's coming inside and can clean out a guy and a half and make him a hole to get through. Um, And same thing, if you say, oh, he's a rookie and he's only, like, if you say only about Barmore, you're going to find out really quickly that that's not a great phrase to use around. oh he's only good for the strength of the pick or he's only good one-on-one no he can he can two gap he can double team and like you said if you let him go he's ridiculously quick for his size and he's going to finish and people are going to find that out and pretty soon they're going to be saying we only need to double team him
0: (laughs) yeah no i'm going to give you all the credit in the world you were yeah you were you were right on that comp uh because, like, not that I didn't like Barmore. Again, I had him as, like, mm-hmm. my 1B defensive tackle. But you were just like, that's a, that's the dude. And, yeah, you're right. That's that's the fucking dude. He's been that kind of guy. Um, on the other side of the ball, in terms of rookie trench players that have been phenomenal, Rashawn Slater, you know, there was a lot of debate pre-draft. Who is OT1? Is it Penne Sewell? Is it Rashawn Slater? There was a lot of people in the Penne camp. there's a lot of people in the Slater camp. I think you and I were in the – you know, what's the team <laughs> to determine, like, who, you know, who, who do we really like better? I think in most instances, you and I were like, well, Sewell's got the physical gifts. Like, you can make him work pretty much anywhere. But in, like, a zone team that needed either a tackle or a guard or a center, like, just somebody you could throw in there, and they're going to be good no matter what. Rashawn Slater, I think you and I agreed, was that that kind of guy. Well, Chargers needed a left tackle, so he's played left tackle from the beginning, and he's been better than Penny Sewell at left tackle. I think it's pretty easy to say at this point. Again, long-term projection, we'll see. Penny's put a lot of good tape out there. But early returns, first eight games, if we're stacking, Rashawn Slater's a left tackle versus Penny Sewell's a left tackle. Rashawn is not only better right now, but he's been one of the best left tackles in the league. I'm talking going up against a who's who of pass rushers, one-on-one on an island. Miles Garrett, like whoever you want to throw at him, he's going against you know, Bosa in practice. And he's been awesome.
1: And he's been quiet. And if you yes. get a quiet rookie offensive left left tackle, you won. Right? That's it. If you get anonymity, if you get, man, I really haven't heard anything about him. As a a rookie starter at left tackle on an offense, expected to do things. And again, he's out there on an island. You're not giving him a ton of help. You won. You got exactly what you were looking for in the top half of the draft. And the big thing that always kind of caught me was the guard or tackle debate with Slater. And just from positional value, like I was like, you try him at tackle, right? because I think he can play tackle and I'm of the opinion that you play him at tackle until they prove they can't. And not all tackles can switch to guard. I know a lot of offensive line guys, Duke Manningweather, like just cause they can't play tackle doesn't mean they're good at guard. You're right. But we were talking to Brandon Thorne who works with Duke and whose opinion we trust very highly. Um, and rightfully so, uh, Brandon knows more about offensive line play than we do by far. And he was like, no, he I actually think he might be a better guard and it was like, okay, I respect that, but I'm still from positional value. If I'm going to pick him in the top 10, I'm going to try him at tackle and left or right. I don't really care so much wherever he's more comfortable is my answer. If you're spending that much draft capital on him, if he really loves left, fine, play him at left, you know, could he play right? I think he could. We'd see, but like, honestly, if you put a guy in at left tackle, you try it and it works. Again, you (laughs) You don't have to move him. He's winning one-on-one and that's the greatest positional value. Now, if he doesn't work and you slide him inside the guard and he turns out to be a great guard, cool. Guard salaries have come up over the last five years. It's still a good value for your team, but it's not the same as having a, what looks to be in the early going, franchise left tackle that you could just leave out there and run your game plan around, not through or with help.
0: I kind of had a – because I saw what people saw where it's like, oh, you kick him into guard, he'll be an all-pro. And I was like, yeah. But I think the insinuation with a lot of those kind of like – convert, like, you know, look look at Zach Martin. He played tackle in college. Honestly, Zach Martin could have been a solid tackle in the NFL. I truly believe that. But he's an all-pro guard. With Rashawn, I was kind of like, he's a pro-bowl tackle and a pro-bowl guard. I didn't think it really mattered. I was like, he's a pro bowl regardless, and you're just taking him where you just take the best offensive line talent. And if you already have tackles, fine, you put him at guard. If you already have guards, fine, put him at tackle. Like that's how I saw his value. Where he was so scheme or you know, so team agnostic, where it's like, you know, Christian Derisaw, you're playing him at left tackle. You're not playing Derisaw at guard. But with with a guy like Slater, if you just want to get your best five on the field, like that's that's the value I saw with him. But you're right. If you think he could play tackle, try him at tackle first. And if he works there, fine. You got a tackle for the next 12 years. You're good to go. And so far at least, Chargers looked like they got themselves a tackle for the next 12 years, which I can't remember the last franchise left tackle they had. Um I mean Okung, Okung was good there for a time, but like long-term starting offensive tackle. Like I, I literally can't remember the last time they had one. So uh It's been a hell of a pick for them so far. I will say on the other side at right tackle, they got some stuff to fix because Storm Norton has been a problem, including in this game. In half of his starts, he started starting after the first week. um, He's given up six or more pressures in half those games, which is six games. He gave up eight to New England. He's had a game where he gave up nine pressures. It's kind of a, a streaky you know, performance like one week he's on against Kansas City, because Kansas City has no edge rushers, and the next week he gives up nine pressures. And I think the unreliability of Storm Norton at right tackle when they're going into empty protections and he's isolated one on one has ended a lot of drives for them. And they have got to figure out how to help him. Like whether it's chips from Eckler, chips from the tight end, like I don't I, I don't care they need to help Storm Norton on third and long because if they don't start helping him, Justin's going to get crushed. Like, Rashawn's fine. Leave Rashawn alone. Give all the chips to Storm Norton if you need to because he just can't survive on his own. He got absolutely killed by New England, and I think every team in the league that goes against the Chargers, like the Eagles go up up against them this week, every single team going against the Chargers knows, like, that's the dude to attack.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a sort of, allegory for the larger performance and you know it's funny that we start with storm to talk about that i loved storm coming out as a swing tackle i thought he was a swing developmental tackle that could you know eventually move into what he's doing now which is sort of spot starting it right and i think it's a little bit of a new coaching staff in brandon's daily staff coming out and going hey he did pretty well because he did in some of those first four starts like he had some very solid starts thrown in there and they went look it's gonna work and you need to just be fluid. Everything changes. We talk about progress not being linear well. He's not just going to keep playing well against all fronts. And look, the Patriots kinda had their throwaway last year. They just said, Look, we're <laughs> we've been loaded up. We had salary. We had Tom. We had everything else. And this is our this is our reset year. We're just kinda gonna trash out. And, and they still
0: weren't even a bad team. Like. They weren't
1: terrible. They were not a uh, a one in fifteen or in this year one in sixteen team. You know, but last year was there. Oh man, they just ever the wheels fell off in lots of places. And now they reset and they're back. Right again. We talked about on the offensive side of the ball and on the defensive side of the ball. Bill Bill Belichick can bring it. And a lot of people were saying this week like Justin Herbert ran into a Bill Belichick coach defense. Right. He ran into all the things that Bill has done for a very long time. Storm did as well. Like the whole offense ran into a a true Patriots defense. And that'll screw up a lot of people and has over the last 20 years. Uh, And so I'm not surprised Storm had a bad game. I'm not terribly surprised Justin had a bad game. That's kind of why we had this one on our watch list was, huh, the Chargers aren't playing quite as well as expected. They started out super hot and they've leveled out the patriots took a little while to get going but now they're warmed up and they are you know a contending we talk about that wide middle of the pack they are a contending team in that wide middle of the pack so the patriots have come up the chargers slipped down a little they're kind of at the same level it'll be really interesting to see What happens? And we got to see on Sunday what happens when Bill brings his defense against what is a very good offense and Mac Jones on the other side plays very efficient football against what can be a great defense, but they've been a little leaky this year still. So the Chargers have some adjustments if they don't want to keep slipping. And that's a, I think that's a hard lesson for a new head coach is like, man, I got all this talent and we started out really well and we're not there right now. So it's kind of like go win every week, people say. It's really hard to win in the NFL on any given week. And I think Brandon Staley and his staff are finding that out right now that, oh, we've got to treat each week as its kind of own little book, or we're going to lose more of these things than we win. And he knows he has more talent than that. So it'll be really interesting to see how
0: they adjust. And and here's the thing, even with the the two picks that Herbert threw, they still only lost by three. Oh, yeah, it was a competitive but game. They, they, they put themselves in bad positions and they still only lost by three. So it's like, eh, they'll be fine. You know, it, it's it's one of those where it's like two good teams are facing off against each other. Difference in the game is like two or three plays. Two or three plays went the Patriots' way, and they won. Same thing happened to the Patriots in week one against the, uh, now we know in hindsight, terrible Dolphins. One play went against them with the Harris fumble, and they lost. When two good teams play, like, eh, that's why the NFL is so great is because you don't get seven-game series like the World Series that just ended, you know, tonight. You get 60 minutes. Don't fuck up. <laughs> like That's yeah, it.
1: More than, like, two or three times because that's the margin, right? They say it's a game of inches that, again, I just said it's hard to win on any given Sunday, and, and sometimes that sounds like Coach Week. It, it's not. Everybody's talented, yeah. and it's a very few number of plays, and we're going to talk about another game that, you know, Could have been very, very different. Uh, Had just like literally two to three plays in the first quarter gone the different way, that game would have cracked wide open, and we would have had a very different contest. It's the margin is so
0: thin. Well, why don't we talk about that one? Which is the Jets knocking off the Bengals, and the the Jets are what two and five now, and their two wins were against two teams that went into this week as top. Three in seeding in the AFC in the Bengals and Titans and that's their two wins so the Jets at least to me are yeah they have the same record as like the same old Jets but same old Jets are not knocking off the number one seed in the AFC seven weeks into the year and they're definitely not knocking off a Titans team with a fully loaded Derrick Henry at the time who unfortunately got hurt uh you know they're not beating them either like they're making progress they're getting some good wins on the resume. And there were two things that I think really, really pushed the Jets over the, over the edge to get this win. Well, three things. One <laughs> of them is not super fun to talk about because that, that Hilton penalty absolutely was a factor. But let's talk about the positive. The two things that I think really pushed the Jets over the edge here are Mike White is ruthlessly efficient in that he will go out of his way to be as safe as humanly possible, and he will not be punished by mistakes. And we'll see if defenses adjust to that and maybe not give him so many check down yardage, uh, yards. But the Bengals were perfectly content to give him check down after check down, and he took it. It was like four, 4.2 average depth of target. Over 60% of his yards were yards after the catch. Like, it's insane. Like that is check down city. But it worked, and he didn't make any mistakes. Didn't cost his team. And then the the second factor is LaFleur, this is his first game calling up in the booth, where I think he clearly was a much more comfortable play caller. Because with the trade for Flacco, LaFleur felt that Flacco could be, you know, the older mentor veteran presence on the sideline for Mike White. So he didn't need to be there so he could go up in the booth. And I think that helped him be a better play caller. Um, I think Flacco's presence, you know, I-, I think probably helped Mike White as well. You know, having a veteran on the sideline because they didn't have any veterans before to start the season for Zach Wilson. Um, so I think that helped Mike White. And then again, I think just the ruthless efficiency and the total commitment to not making mistakes. It, it it's We just talked about it. Like two or three plays were the difference in, in Patriots Chargers. It was two mistakes by Herbert. Well, the Jets didn't make any mistakes the Bengals did and they won the game
1: yeah i think what you said about them stacking quality wins as a team and that they are progressing is true i would also say if you've been watching any jets football if you're if you're not a jets fan and you've seen a couple of jets games go back and watch Bengals jets it was a really entertaining game and the Jets looked completely different than they have all year And it was Mike White. This is a team that was geared to run a certain way. And then they went out and got Zach. And Zach is a rookie quarterback with immense potential, but he's learning and he needs to make plays in structure. And he's, that wasn't his, that wasn't the big flash with Zach coming out, right? It was that he can make plays out of structure and down the field. He's got an amazing army, super mobile, but the whole like, Stay in the pocket, throw it within three seconds. You know, take what's take what's available was not really his game. It is Mike White's game, and you'd say, yeah, it was check down city. But watch how he did it. It was ridiculously impressive. This was a ball distribution seminar. Mike White for the first eleven throws was eleven for eleven. And I don't know what his average time to throw was, but I would say it was about two point two seconds. I think I it actually was, have
0: that data. Let me it I'll was pull it up for you.
1: So fast, like fastest in the NFL. I think the fastest time to throw is Ben Roethlisberger. I think he's like two point six or something. Mike White for his first eleven throws made he was like Mac Jones, is playing, but faster he would come out, he'd be like, one, two, that's what they're giving me, bam, and the ball was on target, and it was out so fast, and those first 11 throws were all short, yes, but dimes, and again, to the open spot, to the right place, to what the Bengals were giving him, and the Jets were just marching. Now, they march down, they score their first points in the first quarter all year, they score a touchdown on their opening drive, they elect to take the kickoff, which is a ballsy move for for Robert Sala (laughs) for an offense that hasn't been moving with a quarterback that hasn't started for you before. They march right down, score a touchdown. Um, You know, Bengals come back, they get a three and out. The defense pitches a three and out. So you go right down, score seven, get a three and out. They get the ball back. White's coming down. He throws his 12th pass and it is a tip by the receiver. And unfortunately it is an up tip. It was an accurate pass. It was an up tip and it gets picked. Bengals on a short field. Joe Burrow and that talented offense just tore apart, you know, their rival the week before on a short field. What does the Jets defense do? They pitch a goal line stand. The Bengals come away with no points. Jets start driving again. Ball gets tipped again. Another good, accurate pass, but it gets tipped. From your guy, Jermaine Pratt. I know. Yeah, I mean, there's good players on both sides of the ball in the NFL. There's Jermaine Pratt. Logan Wilson was covering Michael Carter all day. We'll talk about Michael Carter in a bit. But, like, the Jets came out, march down, get a touchdown, get a stop, are marching again, throw a pick, throw a goal line stand, are marching again, get another bad tip pick. Again, two or three plays go, and the Jets could have cracked this one open in the first quarter versus the Bengals. Let that sit in your ears for a second. The Jets could have cracked this game open in the first quarter, and it looked like they were gonna. That's an amazing change. So if you only watch one Jets game all year, go back and watch this one because it was terribly entertaining. The Jets look different, and this is the offense. Actually, this is the offense and the defense. We'll talk about Bryce Hall and some guys on the other side, Marcus May like guys we like, but they're all these guys that we talked about in our divisional preview. And just when they were drafting, we're like, man, they're going to have Carter and they've got Piran and, you know, they've got a bit of a line in front of them. The offensive line looks better. And they've got Mims, who was a guy we liked and has had historical struggles trying to get on the field. Mims was there making catches. You know, they go get Elijah Moore. They've got Crowder. We're like, man, this is an offense. Well, all year it kind of comes and fits and starts and sputters a little bit. Zach has some really rough games. Mike White comes out All those guys are making plays. All those guys are making plays led by Michael Carter, who I'm not afraid to say it looked like Alvin Kamara Jr. in this game. And before anybody jumps on me for that, he absolutely did. Um, We're talking about 77 rush yards, 95 receiving yards, and a TD on 24 touches ruthlessly efficient ran with power did all the things that i loved at unc i love seeing a little guy drag defenders and they're like wait a minute And he's like yep this is how it's going to be all game he was their engine but mims made catches crowder made catches elijah moore had a couple of catches um this team just looked like we thought it might and that was so
0: exciting i i i i want to stamp one more point here for the box score scouts Those picks were not on Mike White. I want to reiterate, the tips were not because of bad placement, just bad luck. Mike White still played mistake-free football in this game, in my opinion. So ignore the box score. His efficiency is is really what won them the game. And if the Bengals, as you mentioned, if they didn't get those two tip picks, they'd probably get blown the hell out in the first half because they were marching. And I, it was the most impressive performance I've seen from the Jets in a while.
1: A long time. <laughs> and, a long, long time. And if you have any question about Mike White and, oh, he's a rookie. Well, I mean, not a rookie, but uh, a new face that defensive coordinators don't have a lot of tape. Go watch those first 11 throws. Quick, decisive, right spot, on time, on target. Balls are thrown flat where a receiver can make a catch easily away from the defender. Like... Just gorgeous. And the Bengals had no answers. Like, Bengals have a very talented defense. They got Jesse Bates, and we talked about Logan Wilson and Larry Ogunjobi, And, like, they have a lot of great defenders. They were just getting run. They were getting rolled flat out
0: by he the Jets. He actually had a he had 100% completion percentage before those two picks, believe it or not. Yeah, he was 11 he for 11. He didn't miss a throw. No, yeah, he, he, he started off
1: 11 for 11, and they were all just like that it, again it was no prayers or oh that was a 50 50 ball or oh he heaved one up getting sacked no it was there 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 throw there there throw that's the right place bang 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 and the Bengals were just like you could tell they were kind of like whoa what? we're just on our <laughs> heels we're just getting rolled down the field we have no like who is Mike White what is happening and the Jets were loving it and uh the play calling I think you brought up the really good point that he uh LeFleur coached from the box the balance kept them off balance, mm-hmm. run, pass, pass to the tight ends, pass to their wide receivers, uh, some rollout, some from the pocket. Just the balance, the offensive play calling balance was really impressive, and the Jets looked really good. I'm just happy for, for Jets fans like Rich Eisen, long-suffering Jets fans, who got to sort of, I hope, tune into this game on Sunday and go, oh, wow, that's what it can look like? because it did and it was super exciting like it was really entertaining and good football
0: i'm very curious again i'm assuming that zach wilson's gonna re-enter the starting lineup when he's healthy unless something crazy i don't know i'm not even gonna put it out in the
1: salt no sala put it out for you he said in his press conference all options are on the table he said if mike white (laughs) no he said it right after the game he said if mike white continues to play this way all options are on the table he cracked that wide open in the New York media market right after the game. Bro, it's been one game. What the fuck? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like Wilson okay. has been blowing the doors off. Yes, you see a very high draft pick on him. But he's like, he saw what his team was doing. He was pumped. Did you see the sideline yeah. shots of Salo? Like He was like, this is what I've been telling you, right? This is what we can do as a team. I told you. And here it is. And it was laid out for everybody to see. He was so happy. You think he wants to roll that back? Mm-mm. We'll see. It's going to be very interesting. It's going to be a great story to watch.
0: If he keeps playing like this, I guess they'll uh, they'll give Zach all the time to recover he needs.
1: All the time that. to develop holding a clipboard he needs. We'll see. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to continue. It often doesn't for, for quarterbacks getting their first few starts and, and that White qualifies for that. But, boy. This Jets team was absolutely humming on Sunday. It looked like a whole different team. So if he can keep that up, good for him, good for Jets fans, good for Robert Sala and his coaching staff and and sort of having everybody buy into that message, right? I was promising and it wasn't stacking wins. And now this, like the film had to be so fun. I'm sure they got Monday off. They rolled into film today. And like every room was probably like, yeah, that's right. We did that to a very good team. Uh Uh-huh.
0: I uh, one film that the Bengals are probably uh, submitting to the league as a complaint is that penalty at the mm-hmm. end that we have to talk about because yep, that did probably help swing the game like Bengals were driving. Um, they got stopped up to a third and 11, which or no sorry, Jets were driving excuse me. Um, it got stopped to a third and 11 so the Bengals had an opportunity to stop them and then get the ball back for Joe Burrow to potentially go win the game uh and Hilton got got penalized for a helmet to helmet that, to be honest, probably shouldn't have been penal like I understand by the letter of the rule, yeah, but like by the spirit of the rule, like you have Hilton going as low as humanly possible to make a tackle, and the running back who's uh, I think it was Carter, right, who's uh-huh. five nine, also goes low. And just by virtue of him going low into Hilton's helmet, you know, it it created a helmet-to-helmet situation. Like, the defender's already going low. Like, he can't pull up out of it, or else he would literally be launching into Carter's chin. So it's like, what do you want him to do? Always tackle high and miss every single tackle? Like, I I think it should almost be like a a tie-goes-to-the-runner type thing, except tie-goes-to-the-no-flag, where if one guy goes low and the runner meets him low it's no flag because there's there's literally nothing a defender can do about that and i think it was kind of a bullshit flag bagels fans obviously thought it was kind of a bullshit flag even i saw jets fans were like yeah i can see why you're upset happy they got the win but could see why you're upset um and that's the kind of play where it gave the jets a first down and it was game over and i'm not saying that burrow absolutely would have driven back down the field after a punt and, and won the game. But I think he at least deserved a chance and he didn't get that chance. So I can, I can absolutely see why Bengals fans and probably the Bengals themselves are complaining to the league office right now saying like, Hey, refs shouldn't be deciding who wins and loses. Swallow the damn whistle.
1: Well, I'll throw one out there. That's probably even spicier. Cause you said letter of the law, right? Right. And the way the rule mm-hmm. is written, it says if a player lowers his helmet to initiate contact, that it's flagged, that it's So penalty. you think it should
0: go go against Carter?
1: Because he lowered it. If you, if you call it the way it's written, yeah, that's a flag on Michael Carter because – and they do not call it that way. That's – the rule says – if you lower your helmet to initiate contact, and it doesn't say offense or defense, and it should be called on both sides, and running backs do it all the time.
0: That's their job <laughs> description.
1: Bro, that's <laughs> the gig. They get to somebody. They don't go,
0: all right, face
1: up, right? They hunch, right? No matter whether they're putting it in their chest or trying to break through an arm tackle or whatever else, that's what they do. They do. They ball down and they drop the crown of their helmet. But because they're an offensive player, they largely don't get called for. In fact, I don't think I can ever remember maybe once where an offensive player has been flagged for lowering the crown of their helmet.
0: Last one I can remember is Trent Richardson in 2015.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, that's a long time ago, and they've changed, they've updated the rules since then with new emphasis. Again, largely to call it on the defenders. And look, we know it's an offensively tilted league and whatever else, but if you're going to call it by the quote-unquote letter of the law, that flag goes to Carter because Hilton came in nice and low, as low as he could, and Carter's short, and he dropped his helmet into Hilton's helmet. So if you really want to you can call it on Carter, I'm with you as a fan of the game uh and quite frankly in terms of just fair football like carter and hilton came together after the play they were talking about it they were laughing carter had his arm around hilton he's like man i, I you know yeah there's nothing you could have done i know you weren't i didn't know you didn't mean it they were just talking about it while the review was going on and they're no bad blood because there was it wasn't targeting he wasn't trying to take his head off none of that yeah. and you know they just kind of said yeah you know it's the way it goes but I'm with you. I'd rather have the ref swallow the whistle, but you know, if you're going to call it on somebody, call it on Carter, right? And you know, but I don't want to see that either because the answer is what do you want Carter to do? Just stand up there and take shots, same as Hilton. What do you want Hilton to do? He can't go any lower, if he goes up he comes into his chin. Like there's no real good answer, so I like the push solution a little bit better. But letter of the law, people don't realize that most people don't realize that you can and should call it on the offensive player if they do it. But just an unfortunate play in an otherwise really entertaining game. Should mention, as we already kind of did, that the Bengals came roaring back like Joe Burrow. He, he's he got no fold in him. He's he's going to make plays. He had the Bengals in a position to try and win this game at the end, even though the Jets played I'll just say, out of their mind, way better than they've played all season <laughs> and, as we said, in a long time. Um, so don't don't heap too much dirt on the Bengals and their chances. Uh, you know, oh, they lost to the Jets. Again, if you're box score scouting, yeah, they did. But they came back, played a tough game. Um, they made a lot of big plays. They pushed the Jets to the limit. The Jets won this one. Um, but wildly entertaining game. Super glad we had it on our watch list because uh, this was – I don't know. It was
0: one of the more fun games of the weekend for me. Oh, at least in terms of pure entertainment factor. Yeah. yeah. Um, Three up number three. Let's talk about Tommy Turnover a little bit. Um, This was a rare, I don't want to call bad game from Tom Brady. Iffy game from Tom Brady. Questionable game from Tom Brady. Maybe it's a better word. You know, kind of general theme of the week. Is one or two plays costing teams and Brady's picks or turnovers in general. He also had a fumble. Um it, it cost the Bucks this game. And I, I know they weren't a picture of health. They're dealing with some injuries, but they're such a loaded roster that they're still a better overall roster than I think than the Saints. And the Saints also, you know, lost their quarterback halfway through this game. Like Jameis went down, unfortunately tore his ACL on kind of a uh, an unfortunate tackle from Devin White, kind of around the horse collar area, which Devin White didn't try to hurt him. Like they're friends, like Devin White and Jameis are, are buddies, and you know Jameis texted Devin after the Super Bowl and said congratulations, so happy for you. Like one of the first people to text Devin White when they won was Jameis. Like they're 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 friends, so I don't I don't think he he tried to hurt him. It was just an unfortunate tackle, and you know hopefully Jameis recovers and come back strong next year, but. You know, the, the, the Saints also were not exactly uh, super healthy in this game. So I, I don't necessarily want to blame the Bucks' loss on their injuries. I want to blame it on Tom throwing a couple really, really bad <laughs> interceptions. And I think the, the last one where it was against two men, where he straight up did not see the safety, was the worst of the two. And that was one of the rare picks that Tom's ever had, where I straight up did not know what he was looking at. Like you look at the the first pick he threw against CJ uh, or Trump, sorry not CJ Chauncey Gardner Johnson, like it was a single high man look. You and I watched the tape before we even recorded this because we were trying to mm-hmm. figure out exactly what the hell happened. Like it was a man coverage look. Um, you know he had Godwin on the outcut. Paulson Adebo held the shit out of Godwin by the way, but whatever, who's counting. And Gardner Johnson was in man coverage and then just fell off the route and picked it off because he just saw the ball coming out like pure instinctual play. Like that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you fooled Brady. You got him golf clap to the defense. That second pick against two man was inexcusable. Like that is a pick that I expect Mike White to throw. I don't expect Tom Brady to throw it. And it was a, it was a pick six that ended the game right then and there. So yeah, the reason the Bucks lost this game is Tom Brady. And it's one of the rare times when I think I can say that.
1: Yeah. And the saints have his number, right? Sean Mm -hmm. Payton. And in this case, Dennis Allen, they're the team they're in, you know, in the same division, they're the team that gives Brady fits like at a higher rate than all other teams. The saints have Brady's number. Now, do they always beat him? No, of course not. He's Tom Brady, but if Brady has one of those games during the year, it's usually one of the two Bucks games, right? He doesn't usually get got in both. Um but he got got in this one. They got to him. You mentioned it earlier, had a fumble. Uh they sacked him. Pressure on any quarterback is not fun, you know, picking your uh picking yourself up out of the dirt uh after being stomped on by guys like Cam Jordan is not cool. Um and it does throw almost all quarterbacks off. There are very few quarterbacks that can take a bunch of hits, um, good ones, uh, and and get up and be the same person. But on that second pick, it was right to left read, snapped his head in that crossing route and threw it, and he just never looked past it. Right. It's like knowing it's like when you're when you're shooting a rifle, knowing what's past your target, right? And he just didn't see him. And he he got to him quick and he let the ball go quick and that was it came and cut it downhill play turns pick six he just never saw him but the saints they stopped tampa bay's run game they had the same uh saints have been calling it hard hat defense right they had a, a couple from geo bernard that went for decent yards but leonard fournette had nothing in this game like, he got stacked up, so they had to throw it. And that forces – anytime you can take away one half of somebody's game and say, do the other thing, you're going to get more chances. And they took advantage of the chances. They caught those balls when Tom Brady threw them to him. And that's the difference in the game.
0: 26 yards rushing total for Leonard Fournette on eight carries. Which, I mean, going into the game efficiency-wise, the Saints were, like, top three run defense in the league in terms of, like, per-carry efficiency. So – I'm not like super surprised by that result.
1: How many parlays do you think that killed that game? No, Fournette.
0: net. Oh, a lot. Oh, I mean, 26 lot. <laughs> you, I mean you expect more oh. than 26 yards. Right, a lot. Yeah. Uh cuz I think in one of my pickums I had him God, what was the over-under? I can't remember what his yard. I think it was like 45 or something Yeah, I was like going to
1: say, it feels like high 40s, low 50s would be like where you'd go, eh,
0: it's about, you It's know, like, oh, maybe. Day. But like you were on the perfect 30. Line. Yeah. yeah,
1: and he got 26. And like that probably crushed a few parlays on Sunday.
0: Uh, I also want to mention Trevor Simeon, who took over for Jameis, looked competent, made just enough throws, moved the chains just enough time without making crazy mistakes to get the win. Uh, will he start over Taysom when Taysom gets healthy? Probably not, because I think Taysom just gives them a, a little bit more of a dynamic element with his legs that Sean seems to be enamored with, but I don't know. Maybe we'll see another like two-quarterback system like they were trying to do before with with, Sim, with Simeon and Taysom, so that Taysom can keep doing the special teams and receiver work and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Maybe they'll get Phillip Rivers out of retirement. There's been some rumors of that. Still got a long way to go in the season, but right now, Saints are five and two. They're looking uh, at challenging for the division, believe it or not. And over the next ten weeks or so, we'll see if they can pull it off.
1: Yeah, that's that's the vote right there for the early vote for Sean Payton for coach of the year. We're talking about Taysom Hill and Trevor Simmon as his quarterbacks. And you just said challenging for the division in the same sentence. That's there are very few coaches in the league that can pull that off. And Payton year after year has that team achieving at a tremendously high level. They have, they've had a fairly high talent level. Of course they've had drew Brees, and that's been a, a great, source of stability for the organization as it is with all great quarterbacks that hang out for a long time the Aaron Rodgers the Russell Wilsons like a great quarterback covers a lot of ills but Sean Payton even when Drew was down uh this year no Drew and rotating Jameis and Taysom and now Trevor Simeon five and two like don't count the Saints out that defense is playing angry right now and the offense is getting it done with whatever they've got at quarterback Sean Payton is doing a hell of a job with the headset
0: yeah he's uh i would say him belichick again considering the expectations going into this year him belichick and gosh considering all the injuries they've sustained i would say john harbaugh as well are probably like the the three early favorites for coach of the year
1: yeah you gotta put cliff in there
0: yeah you could absolutely put cliff in there i don't know if i'd pull the trigger on mccarthy Cause I feel like his coordinators do more than he does. I,
1: I'm sorry. I just threw
0: up in my mouth. I, <laughs> oh, Lafleur winning that game against the Cardinals. No, I
1: love for sure. But McC- you said McCarthy and coach of the year. And I, I just, I'm sorry. I just a <laughs> little bit spit up, hit the back of my neck. Um, so anyways, we'll move on so that I, I keep my beer down. Cause that, that's a very unpalatable thought.
0: Yeah. Overall, very entertaining game. Uh, remarkable how the Saints just keep doing that to the bucks ever since Tom Brady's arrival and hopefully we get just as entertaining a matchup when they meet again I think uh, Christmas week like the week before Christmas is when they meet again So we'll get a uh, we'll get part two soon enough here. Today's episode is sponsored by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and all of the high-quality fabrics that make up their daily wear system. The daily wear system is a selection of clothes that are all built to work together in any combination you want, whether it's their breathable t-shirts and polos, or their stylish button-ups and shirts, to of course underwear and beyond. Mack Weldon makes it easy for you to dress for work, leisure, or play with staples like their tailored A sweatshorts that pair well with their ultra soft Pima tees, or if you're getting ready to start traveling again like I am, you can use their silver knit polo and radius shorts that are the perfect high tech, but also highly packable combo. And by the way, I have the Ace Half Zip and I've had it for well over a year now and I still wear it all the time. Could not recommend it enough. It's extremely comfortable and worth every single penny. So if you want to try anything from the MacWeldon Weldon Daily Wear system, you can get 20% off your first order at macweldoncom bootleg, promo code bootleg. And again, that will give you 20% off your order. Once more, that is is bootleg, promo code bootleg, Mac Weldon, radically efficient wardrobing. Let's get into three down here. You know, three teams, schemes, trends, whatever you want to call them, that, that had a little bit of a rough week eight. And we're going to call this offensive brownout because the following teams scored 17 points or less. Falcons, Dolphins, Steelers, and Browns in the same game against each other. Lions, Jags, Broncos, Vikings, Giants. That is over a quarter of the league. And the one thing that almost all of these teams have in common with the Steelers being the one exception is that they are not over 500. The Steelers are at four and three, so they're barely over 500, but they're over 500. I think to me that signals more than anything else that in the modern NFL, if you can't score, you ain't going to win. A lot of these teams are absolutely horrifically bad. Not all of them are bad defensively. Some of them are pretty solid defensively, if not more so. But if you can't score, you can't win. You look at the best teams in the league: Cardinals, they can score. Uh, you know, the Bengals, they can definitely score. The Bills, damn right, they can score. But if you don't have an offense, like if you had to choose, like build a side of the ball first, build the offense because you at least have a chance if you could score 30 and then hold the other team to 28 but if you're not scoring 17 most teams in the league are going to be able to score 17 on you i don't care how good your defense is most are going to be able to score 17 on you in any given week and you're going to lose a shitload of games if you can't put up more than that
1: yeah sort of three touchdowns is pretty much the sort of modern nfl minimum when i was putting this list together you know the only reason the Steelers are 4-3 and three is because the other team in their game this week scored less than they did. You know, the Steelers didn't <laughs> score 17, but their opponents scored even less. Uh, so, you know, pretty much every team on that list was a loser this week with the exception of Steelers and Browns because somebody had to win the game. They were both in the same <laughs> game. Uh, but if you don't score... And I would say it's closer to probably 24. I don't have data to back that up, but if you can't put up consistently three touchdowns, you're not going to be in many games. And honestly, even if you do, if I'd extended this to 20, it would have had teams like Kansas city, which had 17 points right up to the end of the game. And they won on a final field goal, 20 to 17 again, versus the giants. So, There are those teams in Kansas City this year, not a team we would have thought would be struggling to score points. They're struggling to score points. They're not a very good team. The modern NFL is a passing game. It's about explosive plays. It's about offense. And if you can't put up points, you're not going to be competitive. And this week, although we had, I would say more entertaining games or more balanced games than we had last week, because again, we had some low scoring games that were close, like the Steelers-Browns game, like the Kansas City Giants game, which didn't get decided until the end of the game. But in general, if you're rolling out expecting to score less than 20 points, you're going to lose way more games than you win.
0: By the way, uh, I I almost want to throw the Texans into the group that scored less than 17 as well, because they were down 38 nothing before the Rams put in backups. So yeah, they <laughs> scored 22, but it was on backups, so does it really count? Like let's, Not let's in your real. typical week. And again,
1: even <laughs> if you go to 20 or 22, I'd say anything sub-24. If that's your if that's your expectation for the week is, hey, we're going to go out and score 20 this week, you're going to be in a dogfight at best. And again, your, your margin for error is going to be razor thin in terms of turnovers or plays you just don't make or defensive plays you could have made. You just don't have, at that level... You have zero margin for error if you're only expecting to put up twenty points. That's
0: all there is to it. The sixteenth ranked uh there's two teams tied for sixteenth ranked in points per game. You know what the number is? Twenty-four. Exactly. 24.0. Like that is the definition of average offense these days. You, you I don't even know if you knew that. I did not you said the number, but that is dead I average in the NFL. Uh better lucky than points. good, as the yeah. saying goes. Uh, one of the offenses that scores significantly more than 20 per game. They're actually ninth in the league at 26 per game, but still find new and interesting ways to make their fans miserable. It's Kansas City Chiefs. They're three down number two. Uh, the really weird, wacky, zany season of Patrick Mahomes continues where I kind of feel like all of the almost interceptions that he threw between like 2018 to 2020, where we're, we're all kind of like, oh my God, he did this amazing thing and let's just ignore the pick that got dropped and look at the amazing thing. Well, now the picks aren't getting dropped and now you're, you're getting the, the flip side of the coin. You know what the analytics people refer to as the regression to the mean of sometimes the bounces are not going to go your way and you're going to get picked like he did in the end zone this week on quite frankly, a decision that I I still am not 100% sure what he was thinking, doing this kind of laser beam jump pass that deflected, I think, off a face mask, if I saw it correctly, and went right up the air, and they got picked on the end zone. And I, I'm sorry. For a team with the expectations of the Chiefs going into this season, you should not have been in a position to possibly lose to the Giants. Like We, nope. we could talk about how the defense has been bad this year, but they held the Giants to... What was it? Seventeen, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. I think they Correct. won like twenty to yeah, seventeen. Twenty to
1: seventeen was the final,
0: and you still barely hung on.
1: Yeah, it was the last second field goal.
0: It's it's inexcusable for a team that we had this kind of expectations for to be barely beating the Giants. Let alone the fact that they they they're already well out of contention for the number one seed, which we thought they were going to contend for now. Like, we're, we're hoping for wild card with how broken this team looks at times. And Pat's got to clean it up. He's pressing way too much. Mm-hmm. He's bailing out of pockets he doesn't need to bail out of. He's doing the, the, the stupid pocket presence nitpicking stuff that we've been talking about for two years now. Like, ever since we started this podcast, we've always been like, Mahomes is amazing. One of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen. But he does this stuff in the pocket that drives us insane. We've literally been talking about this forever, and he's still doing it. And now, with the added pressure of the turnovers finally not going their way, every other aspect of this team is starting to get exposed. And I I don't know how to fix it. Like, yeah, you're going to beat teams like the Giants, barely. But when you're going up against like actual, real contending teams they're getting the shit kicked out of them i don't know how to fix it
1: yeah the weird thing is they fixed their issue from last year and this is one of those sort of exhibit a's of every team is different every year some things maybe your core pieces if you're lucky or a good organization remain your core and you do carry over for some number of years in a row but every team every iteration every assemblage of free agents and draft picks and returning veterans and udfas that make the roster they're all their own unique thing and you hear coaches say this gms say this and you know the chiefs are case in point they fixed their problem from last year's super bowl boy did they fix it they needed the offensive line to be stable and they threw everything at the wall. They took the old shotgun approach, and it worked. Their offensive line is fine, right? It is stable, and it is providing nice pockets for Pat Mahomes to sprint out of, which is the (laughs) weirdest thing. He's seeing ghosts from last year. I mean, everybody gets on Sam Darnold about seeing ghosts, and Pat's probably smart enough not to say that quote, but if you watch the film, these are... Beautiful pockets, right? These are perfectly spaced, plenty of space for him to step up and throw if he wanted to do that. And not only is he not doing that, he's literally just exit stage left, sprinting out of the pocket when he has this perfectly formed bubble and no what we would call impending pressure, nobody just getting off a block that's going to eat him. He just bolts. And until he can rein that particular tendency in, because In past years, he's made really good throws on the outside. and Everybody's like, well, he sprinted out of a perfectly clean pocket, but he also hit that guy in stride 30 yards down the field, and they scored. He's not. He left balls short against the Giants. The accuracy hasn't been there. He's absolutely pressing, thinking he has to score more than he does because the defense has dropped off, too. We expected their defense to be at least functional, probably pretty good hasn't worked out that way they've been caught in the middle all year their pass rush has been non-existent therefore puts more pressure on the offense and Mahomes starts sprinting out of open pockets when he doesn't need to and like you said regression to the mean with all those sort of oh he got away with that you know and it was amazing and this year it's like ah and he didn't get away with it and it was ugly right it got picked so they've got They've got to sort of come back to center. Mahomes has got to realize, hey, the offensive line is great for the most part. We're good. And I need to settle down and kind of go back to that rookie year where they had the rule where Andy Reid said, look, I don't want to legislate all that amazing stuff you do out of your game. So your first three and a half seconds belong to me. (laughs) You do what I say for three and a half seconds. And if that doesn't work, if that's not open, you can't see it, you got a hand in your face, whatever, then just you do whatever because your whatever is amazing. But your first three and a half seconds belong to me. And I think they need to get back to that. Reed needs to kind of pull him to pull him to hand and say, "Mm -mm, we're going back to it. You remember your first three and a half seconds belong to me. I've given you a lot more leash than that in the past couple of years. I'm going to pull it back now. I'm going to tighten it up. You're you need some help you need some guidance and that's a weird thing to say to a guy like Patrick Mahomes who is obviously uber talented and that hasn't gone away but he isn't maximizing it in fact he's doing things he's making some of his own problems right now and Reed and the coaching staff have to step in and say Mm-mm, we're going to go back to some rigid things a little less fun because the, the Chiefs have been the loosest team in the league on offense for two years they they i've compared them to the showtime lakers behind the back passes no looks shovels tackle eligibles just whatever they just throw stuff at the board and see if it sticks and eh, if it's working that's cool it's not working they need to get back to basics and that's your first three and a half seconds belong to me one two three from the pocket if that doesn't work you do whatever
0: I also think that they are not emphasizing the kind of runs yet that I think they really should be. Like you look at at the size of their offensive line. You should never be calling outside zone unless you get a front. <laughs> unless you get a front where it's like, oh, we have to call outside zone. Like they're giving it to us. But like, no power duo trap, all that kind of sh- like vertical, 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 vertical. I don't want the, any of this side-to-side. Side. You look at the backs in their backfield, too. Like, you, you should be north-south all the time.
1: Give me Trey Smith on a guard counter. Like, all day yes. long. Like, yes. just give me Trey Smith on a guard counter. I oh, want to see it. Oh, because he, he's going to he bury
0: somebody. People. Did you see the one where his helmet came off? And he just uh-huh. fucking flattened this dude. Honestly, I should have nominated that for shot of the week. Uh, like, he fucking... This yeah dude. i just want
1: to see that over and over again because you know what defenses get when that happens tired. real tired of it <laughs> <laughs> like i don't want to see trey coming. oh here he comes oh man i know it's my job to engage him man the last time did you see what happened to me i got folded in half like a cracker Like that's not going to, uh, it's, and you're right. They should be emphasizing that because those guys are super talented. Creed Humphrey was bullying guys in the Giants game. There's a clip. I don't know if you saw it. was 20 yards downfield, bowling over a linebacker Mm -hmm. guy got back up. He bowled him over again and jumped on him. Like Creed Humphrey is a bully. I think was the caption of the tweet. And they're right. Like use those guys, bully people. They both have experience. Tennessee and Oklahoma. Yeah. Power run game. Mm, They, they know how to do it. So. I'm
0: hoping that they that they emphasize in the back half of the season because especially when Clyde gets back healthy uh whenever that is which I think is MCL right I think it was MCL so it might be a little while but yeah uh, either way like just run the stuff that your offensive line is good at I feel like that shouldn't be something that I have to say on this podcast but apparently I do like they did it a little bit against the Giants they lined up in like 13 personnel in the red zone I was like oh my god it does exist but <laughs> I want to see more of it, you know? I Again, I think this is they had expectations
1: like we did, that they can sort of start where they were last year, fix the offensive line, and just continue on up. Progress isn't linear. They need to take really good stock, and I heard this on a couple of shows this week where they said, you know, the same thing. Everybody's like, how do you fix it? How do you fix it? You need the self-awareness. That was the, uh, the one analyst I was listening to who I can't remember who it was, or I would definitely give them credit, was... You got to come in and say, we're not a good team right now. We're just not a good team. Not we should be beating. Don't start with that. Start with, we're not a good team. We need to do the things we can control. What are the things, you know, Pat's going to do the three and a half seconds rule. We're going to start to get back to some power runs where our offensive line gets to impose their will on people, which offensive linemen always perk up at. And then we're going to work that into a more traditional sort of play action passing game, which we... Haven't had a ton of over the past couple of years, but we we need to morph back into a sort of back-to-basics football team, which the Kansas City Chiefs have been the farthest thing from for a while, and they just need to ratchet down those expectations and start doing the little things right and see how that goes, because otherwise I don't see them turning it around.
0: Uh, Why don't we talk about the other side of that game, three down number three, which is... (laughs) Joe Judge, um,
1: we like to have a little fun on bootleg now and again, and, and this three yeah. down is, is going to be our fun, because did you ever have that teacher in high school, Brett, that could never work tech? It didn't matter if it was an overhead projector or a film strip or something as easy as email. They always found a way to screw it up. Do you remember that teacher?
0: Oh, yeah. I had one that didn't know how to use one of the little uh, battery-powered pencil sharpeners.
1: That's Joe Judge. <laughs> Joe Judge this week tried the biggest weak sauce excuse I've heard in quite a while, which is, oh, yeah, the whole year my headset hasn't been working and had the gall to to tail that, to to put shot and chaser in the chaser was, they better get that cleaned up right away. Oh, you know what the NFL said to Mr. Judge? (laughs) Publicly and loudly, within about two hours, the response was incredibly quick, which was, we've looked into this. We have found no communication problem with the game on Monday, nor were any reported to us. So, ain't no thing, Joe. What are you talking about? Take that weak sauce and get out of here. This is the, the teacher that says, ah, I never sent you the study guide because I couldn't attach it to the email. Oh, right. Sure. Um, This is just another piece of this Giants regime that's like really you're gonna do the dog ate my homework on the tech that's why you're burning timeouts poorly really Joe
0: the whole Giants leadership structure (laughs) I don't get it man because you got Dave Gettleman who we've said our piece about Dave Gettleman before um so I won't dive too deep into it you can listen to last week's show if you really want to hear us talk about dave's draft history uh and then joe judge who i honestly cannot figure out as a head coach i really can't uh and then yeah at, at the top at ownership you got john mara who is going on a crusade against taunting this year and then when they're driving down the field trying to tie the game they get called on taunting when a uh, when, uh, questionable taunting by the way when uh, I think it was Penny got a first yeah, down and it did, it did the little signal and they called... Tom. It's like, this is what you wanted, bro. This is what you want. You want to legislate emotion out of an emotional game. There you go. There's your penalty. I kind of feel like that's what we could say about
1: the whole Giants organization, though, is this is what you wanted. Like, this. this is a team made in your image. This is a roster made with your principles and beliefs. This isn't like you inherited this at this point you're you're 5 6 years into this thing like these are your guys right at the coaching staff at the player level like these are your choices and and this is how it works and the answer is eh, not very well they're one of those teams solidly in the bottom left hand quarter of that graph and have been for a long time we talked about it on last week's show by halloween this team is typically out of it every year because his starts have been like one and five, one and five, one and five, two and six, one and five, one. Of, they're they're always behind the eight ball. Like they haven't really had any hope from the get go in six years. So this is exactly how you want it. You can't say, "Well, I haven't been here long enough," or "You didn't give me the resources," or "You know, our salary cap's lower than anybody else's." It's not like baseball. It's not like they're a small market team. They're in freaking New York. Right? The answer is we've made bad choices top to bottom. They're coming home to roost. We had a little section at the end of the last season where there was a little glimmer that it looked like it was starting to gel and people were starting to buy in. We beat the Seahawks on the road. like We started to have some positives and they went right back to just kicking themselves in the teeth at the beginning of the season. Giants fans, at least in my mentions and, and elsewhere, are fed up. They're saying things like sweep it whole bit gm down get rid of it start over it's not working they're ready for the for the rebuild right not the reload they're ready for the rebuild and that's a tough place to be but when you've got a guy like joe judge i mean what does he do does he make himself run laps about this because his headset doesn't work like (laughs) i'm not sure how that works so it's just a i'm i'm with you i don't We were talking about the Chiefs and how we didn't know how they could play their way out of this. I'm not sure how the Giants anything their way out of this. Like, they're in it, and it's theirs, and it looks just like they wanted it to. And the answer is, nah, bruh, it doesn't work.
0: Like, it just doesn't work. Let's go to three interesting, you know, story that broke yesterday, I think it was, on Monday. I don't know, time time is a construct these days. Uh, And that is Vaughn Miller... (laughs) getting traded to the LA Rams for two of their last draft picks. They actually had Uh, a second and a third rounder to the reloading Broncos and other team that that's loading up on assets, whether to make a run at Aaron Rodgers or to make a run at, you know, insert draft eligible quarterback here. Uh, The Broncos need assets because they, they passed on Justin Fields when they had a chance and they realized very quickly, Oh shit, Teddy Bridgewater is not the guy and neither is drew lock. We need to get a quarterback. So let's get rid of our best player. Um, and that's where we're at right now is Broncos ate a lot of Von's money. I think the Rams are only paying like $700,000 for him in order to, that's what the Broncos did to push the compensation up into those two day two picks. And now you're getting Von Miller, uh, Joseph Day, Aaron Donald, um, Jalen Ramsey, all in the same deep. I mean, need I say more? Like It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous what they're putting together on this defense. And to me, this is a very interesting um, case study for how much to draft picks matter, which are assets that you can use to maybe get great players versus using them to make sure you get great players. Like how, how much can you do by using your draft picks to get proven talent and then finagling the cap to fill in everything else. Because you look at their total picks that they've given away. And I actually brought up an article that has it listed out. So their first rounder, they traded for Stafford. Their second and third rounders, they traded for Vaughn. They still have a compensatory pick in the third because of the Brad Holmes hire. Um, their fourth, they gave away in the Brandon Cooks deal. They still have a fifth rounder, but they gave away the sixth for Shoney Michelle after the Akers injury. And then they have two seventh rounders, and one of them was from the to Talib trade, and keeps a broadcaster now. So <laughs> Stafford, Vaughn, and Sonny Michelle are what they're getting in, in next year's draft class. For me, I'm like, yeah, that's that's great. You're getting a Hall of Famer. You're getting a much-needed uh, complimentary back because yours got hurt. And you're getting a franchise quarterback that you're, could potentially make a super bowl run with because your previous guy wasn't good enough who you used to draft pick on. <laughs> so I just think it's a very interesting case study of like how much do picks actually matter when you can take all the guessing out of the equation and just go get good players.
1: Yeah, it's It's a different way to team build. We talked about it last week that uh, I said that, you know, Shanahan felt like the anti McVay. And the reason I said that McVay was the other end of that spectrum is because he's ultra aggressive. He doesn't sit pat, right? He understands that they're slightly behind and doesn't try and match. He tries to get ahead, right? And he's done it sort of successively over the last two seasons in some very aggressive ways. Stafford being one of them. Um, But changing his offense uh, after sort of Fangio provided a blueprint to stop it, not saying, oh, I'm just going to make everybody, uh, this is my favorite coach speak, everybody just needs to execute better. (laughs) That's not what Sean McVay said. He said, I need to change what I'm doing. And then he said, I need to change who's doing it for me. And he did that in very aggressive ways. And the rest of the Rams uh, ownership and leadership backed him in those. And in this one, somebody, he said somebody came to him, uh, the pro scouting staff came to him and said, Look, we think Mon Viller might be available. And his reply was, You got to be shitting me. (laughs) And. you know a player that he uh, i think it was jordan rodriguez said a player he'd wanted for a very long time and i'm like yeah no shit find me somebody that everybody wants want von miller von miller go. on their team so but the difference with the rams is they went and got him and apparently well not apparently they did have competition and they got it done who they had two do we know who else was in we do, and I don't remember, but it came out after the trade that this was not a solo deal. Like, oh, well, they're the only ones offering. They had competition, and they moved quickly to polish it off. Um, and again, that's that aggressiveness. And it's a fascinating case. You're right, in team building and how that gets done in the value of draft picks. Now, the downside is you don't get a lot of depth because you're trading at best one for one, or in this case, multiple picks for one. So, uh, multiple picks do not become multiple players. They become a single player. That player is older and expensive. So you have to go extreme on the other. And we saw it a little bit in last year's draft. I mean, the Rams had three draft picks, um, so you got to fill it up with UDFAs and other ways, uh, which is cheap labor, right? You have to fill in special teams. You have to fill in those sort of less critical positions. But look, he talked about, I mean, look at those positions. And again, Sonny Michelle was a sixth and that was more out of need. So running back, not the critical position, but pass rusher and quarterback you pay what you need to to get guys at the top end of that performance spectrum and that's exactly what they did with Stafford and that's what they did with Von Miller um and Jalen Ramsey r- they gave first round picks right. for him too yeah indeed so they've picked their spots where they're going to give things they have chosen that draft picks are definitely on the table and included in those things and they don't care they're fully aware of what that means this is not Uh, a sort of short-term strategy this is a belief that we can trade many for one at key positions and find another way to do it and that's newish thinking in the nfl at this level um, that the rams are practicing it so it's gonna be fascinating to watch in the short term like how far do they get with those upgrades how far does it carry them What's the effect next year when we're looking at basically a fifth and, well, maybe a third compensatory, uh, the fifth and two sevenths, like that's not typically enough to reload top talent on a team that either ages out or they lose in free agency. Um, and how it, how it makes them look three years down the road, five years down the road. So I'm with you. It's, it's something that we'll be watching really closely because nobody's ever really done it this way before.
0: Uh, three interesting number two are the other big trade deadline moves we got melvin ingram to the chiefs much needed pass rush help because they they really don't have uh, a great edge rush rotation right now uh frank clark's not living up to his contract chris jones was doing what he could out on the edge but i mean let's be honest he's he's better inside so they needed a guy that could just give them something off the edge. So they got Melvin Ingram. Charles Amenahu, which is probably my favorite of the day uh, to the 49ers, really good inside-out versatility. You know, with Javon Kinlaw hurt, they needed somebody that they could put next to Nick Bosa inside in third-and-long situations and work together with him on stunts and games. Really good power rusher, uses his length well. Very, very underrated player. I think he's going to thrive in San Francisco. So that was a great, great pickup for them. They got him for like a mid-day three pick, which is, again, who cares? Like the Rams are giving up two day twos for Vaughn Miller. Like you can give up a day three for Charles Ameno. Uh, Laurent Duvernay-Tardif to the Jets, which I did not get a look at what the compensation is, but he was just active for the first time this week since like 2019. So they weren't really using him, and he waived his no-trade clause to go to the Jets. And then uh, the Broncos involved another trade, uh, sending Kerry Vincent Jr. to the Eagles because they are flush with corners ever since passing on a quarterback to take Pat Sertan. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, and so they they ship Kerry Vincent Jr. out to the Eagles. Out of those four moves, what would you say is your favorite?
1: I'm with you that Omenahu is the I think the low key sort of like longest impact possibility there where i think he's gonna fit in the system he's an underrated player i think he's gonna thrive um he's got good versatility they understand how to use him in the system he went to i think that's kind of the like most chips in the pot pick there ingram is most immediate since we're not talking about Miller we're really talking about the others here Ingram's the most immediate he didn't want to be in Pittsburgh anymore he didn't feel like it was working out he showed some flash early in season he still has gas in the tank Chiefs just need him to have a few good games down the stretch they don't need him to be you know to eat 500 snaps between now and the end of the season. It's not that kind of usage. They need him to have, you know, 350 good snaps between now and however far they go in the playoffs, if they make the playoffs. Um, but they're not going to make the playoffs without pass rush. So it's a worthy gamble. Uh, and the compensation wasn't terrible for a guy like Melvin Ingram. Um, Duvernay Tardif to the jets is low key. Good. Like we don't really know what he has. He opted out for COVID. Um, Famously he's a doctor. He went back to his native Canada and worked uh you know in a COVID ward. Uh so he hasn't been active, hasn't been playing football, but was a pretty good football player when he was on the field. And the Jets can certainly use uh the depth he might even start for them once he gets sort of up to speed. Um again, super low compensation. I think it was a sixth you said you didn't see. I think it was for a sixth. Um, but I'm not sure. And then the Broncos one's fascinating me because everybody there was just huge, you know, drumbeat for it's Kyle Fuller. It's Kyle Fuller. It's Kyle Fuller. They're going to move Kyle Fuller. They're going to move Kyle Fuller and they end up moving a cornerback, but not Kyle Fuller. And these are my favorite kinds of trade deadline trades, which is Kerry Vincent jr. Uh, a guy that we both had a grade on as a, as a decent corner who we thought could contribute in a rotation for sure. Like as a third corner could play outside, could play nickel. Um, just, again, The Broncos stacked up cornerbacks. They ended up with Fuller and then Sertan, and they had a full secondary room. Kerry Vincent Jr. wasn't going to crack it. The Eagles have a need, for sure, quality secondary players, and it's just kind of a reset for a guy that was talented but landed in a situation that is sort of the opposite of Mac Jones, right? He just didn't fit in. And the team almost kind of like wishes him well and says, we're going to get a pick for you and and go try your trade elsewhere. And it's an opportunity for him to start fresh with a team that needs it. And those are kind of my favorite moves on draft day. So uh, I'm interested in following that one. But in terms of
0: like now and later, Amanda, who's the guy? Uh, Three interesting number three. And this is you know one of the older storylines we're going to talk about but again we don't do this show till tuesday nights and we we'll release it ideally wednesday so we didn't get a chance to talk about this game yet but i i want to really tip my hat to the packers for pulling off a win against the then undefeated cardinals despite missing the vast majority of their best players Bakhtiari was out jair alexander was out Devontae Adams was out. Lazard was out. Scant- uh, Valdez Scantling was out. Uh, Tanyan got hurt during the game. They were down uh, like three starting offensive linemen. Like Myers was on IR as well. Zadarius Smith isn't back yet. It's, it's insane. Like when you look at their injury report, their IR list, like how many great players they're missing, and they beat the last undefeated team in football. And – on the road. It, on the road in a short week, by the way. Like, it's it's nuts. It's probably the most impressive win of the LaFleur era, and I don't think it's particularly close. To me, this shows that the Packers are for real. They're absolutely a Super Bowl contender. Because if you can win that game, you can win any game. Like Aaron Rodgers, he didn't even really quote unquote do that much. But he was efficient, he converted some really crucial third downs, he let the run game do its thing, got him in and out of plays, Lafleur was completely in his bag in terms of play calling, like just in a flow state almost, like just really, really clutch um, in terms of offensive design and game plan for this game. Uh, The defense played exceptional, again, despite all of their injuries and fresh faces like Whitney Merciless, fresh in town you know, lining up in sub packages and and getting pressure on Kyler Murray. You had Eric Stokes was probably the the corner they had with the most snaps for the season that, that was playing for them, and he's a rookie. Like, they were down so many bodies, and the defense still played out of their minds in the first half relative to what we're used to seeing from the Cardinals offense. Stuck mostly to two high shells and said, Kyler, go beat us, and they couldn't. Now, if DeAndre Hopkins didn't have hamstring issues, would the Cardinals have won that game? It's an interesting question to ponder because the offense absolutely looked a lot different with Hopkins on the field than, than not on the field. But at the same time, again, the Packers were missing Devontae Adams, so I'm sure it would look a lot different if Adams was on the field too. So if we're going to give the Cardinals the, the injury excuse, we should give that same leniency to the Packers as well. Overall, phenomenal game by them to pull off that victory. It it really emphasized the power of team football and a next man up mentality. And usually teams that can just bully teams with that kind of dominance up front, even with backups are going to go really far in the playoffs. And that game right there, show me that the Packers are likely going to go really far <laughs> in the playoffs because that's, it's rare, man. It's rare to see that kind of win.
1: It's rare to see it with that litany of injuries. And and that was the other story of the game. And, and there were a lot of tweets about this and, and just buzz that that field is rugged for injuries. There's so many guys that went down just in this game. Not even, you know, Devontae Adams ruled out before this game. And, and a lot of those other guys were as well. There were so many injury stoppages in this game. It was crazy carnage guys were going down left and right guys laying on the field guys carted off the field um just a just a mash unit of a football game and the story for me coming out uh, besides that just the health of both teams was how different both of these offenses looked with without what i will call their 1a wide receivers which is Devonte adams on the Packers side and deandre hopkins on the cardinals now hopkins played some for the cardinals but it was sparingly uh there were reports he went back in the game on his own accord late in the game uh cliff was pretty pissed off about that he was basically running himself back onto the field But mostly I concentrated on what these offenses looked like in what I'll call crunch time or or really have to have it plays, um, third and long. And they both looked very, very different without those two players, right? And it got me to thinking, and I put a whole thread together, we'll put the link in the the comments, um, the day after about what 1A wide receivers really are what they bring to the offense and how important they are to the style of football you're playing. Because you know, like you said, Aaron would have gone to Devontae Adams on a bunch of those plays. And he would have have converted them. That's the power of having that guy that makes that play more often than not in almost any situation. And Hopkins is the mirror image on the other side. When Kyler really needs to dig down and get 11 yards on a third and eight... He's throwing it to Hopkins. They'll isolate him. He's throwing it to Hopkins because D-Hop's going to bring that ball down. They're going to get the first down. It's going to keep the drive alive. It's going to keep momentum going, keep the defense on the field. And that's what 1As do for you in the modern NFL. We talked about it. It's a passing league. It's a scoring league. It's an efficiency league. And those guys bring you both things. They bring you efficiency and the ability to move the sticks, but they also bring those explosive plays that drastically up your chances of scoring and it's not yards that win you football games it's points and when one a's are in the game and there aren't very many of them if you use that criteria you're going to get more points more drives are going to be sustained and you're going to come away with more points than when they're not in the game and that was really clear because you know we saw both teams without them and we saw Again, Hopkins come in on some key drives, man, the offense looks different when he's in there. And then he would go back out again and it would go right back to, okay, now they've got a sort of string plays together, more plays because you're getting less explosive plays to lesser players who convert them sometimes, but not as often. And that just leads to more drives being stalled and less points. So 1A is super important. Um, especially in the modern game. And this just, this game particularly with one gone on each side, largely brought that into focus for me in a way that I hadn't seen it before.
0: Let's get to the bootleg shot of the week. Favorite segment of the week. Got my cause here. I'm going to pour myself shot. Uh, I forgot to tell you before we even did the show who won last week. Ooh, who won? If you could venture a guess, uh, it's the most flashy hit, of course, which is your favorite, which is Kenny Moore completely <laughs> upending Brandon Ayuk, sending him end over end. Well, that's fun
1: because we've got another one of those this week. And I was I was telling Brett before the show that, you know, good solid stops in the hole, like hammering hits. I like those two, but uh, some of my favorite hits are where both guys are going hard and one guy just sort of leaves his feet a little bit and that causes a whole lot of aerial action when they get hit both guys come up fine nobody's limping nobody got hit in the head but it looked like a guy flew out of a roller coaster at full speed i love those hits and we've got another one this week so uh we should uh salute mr moore um for his fine efforts and then what do you have by the way i just have black barrel i have james and black barrel this week the uh the special mix of the um apple and cinnamon bourbon i made uh came out um quite strong in that it is strong <laughs> in flavors all the way around um and it doesn't mix with anything so if you're drinking beer or you're drinking you know some seltzer or anything else really i wouldn't mix it with anything it, it is starts off with a very strong hit of apple um that moves quickly into the the interaction i would say between the cinnamon and like the oak spice, because again, it's bourbon uh, and then just finishes really not hot. It doesn't, it doesn't have any discernible heat because it's sweet, but it is, I, I said on Twitter, it roars to the finish because something about the extra sugar between the syrup and the apples, The it's like it fermented more uh, and mm. it is whew. Like it's, I can drink it over ice. I can't drink it straight. And I know the, the sort of goal is to be able to drink it straight. I can't drink it straight over ice. It calms it down a little bit and I can have a little bit like maybe finger and a half, two fingers. of it. I but do again, wonder
0: if any chemist listens to the show, would all the natural sugars from the apple proof that up? I'm genuinely wondering.
1: It feels like it. Just having had some of the redemption straight and, and being pretty familiar with that class of bourbon it's not a, a a super amped up bourbon um and then having uh, my byproduct of that it it finishes hard like it's it's a lot and so i knew i was going to be drinking other stuff so i went with an old favorite just jameson black barrel my my favorite shot period um of anything i have on my shelf but um yeah here's to kenny moore and uh fun aerial hits that don't get people destroyed because we want to see him (laughs) keep playing
0: oh i love that stuff i love that stuff so especially after i'm drinking scotch so it's just nothing (laughs) i I, what is the proof on casadoras i'm actually genuinely concerned because it's always oh it's only 80 i was gonna say explains why yeah because i was like it's just so easily drinkable
1: yeah their blanco especially is the one that i go back to from their lineup that i again i will buy i think i'm probably on my i don't i don't drink a ton like in terms of volume and uh this summer again because of covid and stuff we didn't have any like big margarita parties or anything so it's just you know been shot after shot And i think i'm probably on my second or third bottle of that stuff because it's just you know put a little bit of that stuff over ice and it just goes down so smoothly love it
0: so, nominee number one for this week's bootleg shot of the week. You can vote down in the YouTube version of this show. Uh, I'm going to pin a comment with all the options. You could vote there if you want to. If you're listening to this on podcast format, you can just go there. Um, so, option number one Marcus May launching Joe Mixon uh, in helicopter fashion, just like last week's winner. Again, one of those weird physics problems where, you know, if Marcus May is traveling at, at one angle, it 20 miles an hour and joe mixon's traveling another angle at 20 miles an hour and hits him at the leg how many times does he flip in the air the answer is uh enough to win a gold half. medal <laughs> yeah one <laughs> and a half uh really really again nobody got hurt even though it looked it looked kind of bad for Mixon Spectacular when he went down. Enough. but he popped right up he was all good but hell of a hit uh option number two jordan lewis i mean form tackle like you could teach this to high schoolers and say go tackle like this when you're when you're nailing down on a crosser Uh, that was about a minute into the fourth quarter of the Cowboys Vikings game Uh, Xavier Woods is option number three this was probably my favorite of the week you know coming free off the edge on a fire zone call Cooper Rush just did not see him and he got detonated I mean just just crushed
1: that's the revenge yeah. hit of the week too <laughs> xavier woods that's the right. former, he's the a former, former cowboy. cowboy he's like oh yeah you let me go okay i'll remind you i'm still a good football player
0: whack oh my god he got absolutely nailed and then the last one you know kind of customary offensive line nominee and uh when you watch the The end zone angle of it. I'm actually watching it right now as I describe it just because it's so damn fun. This was on the the Justin Fields crazy scramble for a touchdown. And you see once Fields kind of breaks uh, the mass of bodies in the middle and then gets to the edge on the left side, you see Jason Peters kind of scanning. And he sees Fred Warner not keeping his head on a swivel, chasing after Justin Fields. And, I mean, he... It's like he just ran into a brick wall. I mean, Fred, he's running, he's sprinting, he's sprinting, and then, boom, stops immediately. Like, no transfer of force into Jason Peters at all. Uh, and Fred, it took him a while to get up from that one, by the way. I don't know if you saw him kind of be like, oh, yeah, shit, Oh, I did. Yeah, no.
1: <laughs> Jason Peters out on the edge and, like you said, starts uh, the phrase for offensive linemen is looking for work right he gets out he realizes okay my quarterback's gonna come behind me he's gonna break pox so he turns back towards the inside of the field and who can i seal to make sure he doesn't go get him and warner's right there and peters just woodsheds him he just absolutely bop up high de him and yeah warner uh i think warner is probably outweighed by least 80 pounds at least it's
0: it's gotta be 70 to 80 i mean peters is massive
1: and peters has some old man strength he is you know he's four years old i've you know famously came out of retirement to help bears this year but he's been their best lineman and it's for stuff like that. It's not the first time he's done it this year but warner was the unlucky guy uh to be near enough in his zone to be affected by that and he he got it handed to him
0: So you can vote for any of those options, again, down at the pinned comment in the YouTube version of this show. If you're listening in podcast format, you can just pop over there and submit a vote if you're so inclined. Uh, Week 9 watch list. We actually have four games this week instead of three because we couldn't quite choose. Got Browns-Bengals in a huge AFC North showdown uh, between two teams coming off a loss. Browns are still in my opinion, trying to find themselves and figure out what they are. And they've been dealing with injuries. I'll give them that, but I don't know. Something quite hasn't looked right in like the last month or so. I would say ever since the, the chargers loss. And again, maybe it's because of injuries and Baker breaking his shoulder and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, it's possible, but something's been a little bit off over in Cleveland. So I'm interested to see how they do against a Bengals team. That's coming off a loss to the jets. Joe Burrow, uh, he's famously competitive, so I'm sure he's looking to just absolutely kick the shit out of them. Uh, Patriots-Panthers is a very intriguing matchup, uh, in my opinion, schematically, because we get to see Mac Jones handle all of the different kind of crazy pressure packages that Phil Snow likes to throw at quarterbacks. They run a lot of different blitz schemes in Carolina, so seeing Mac you know, sort those out at the line of scrimmage, I think it's going to be entertaining, at least from a a film nerd perspective. Uh, Titans Rams, I think I'm going to be at that game because uh, the patrons for the film room voted for Von Miller plus Aaron Donald plus Jalen Ramsey to be the next film room topic. So I think I'm going to go to that game and kind of record my experience there and do some film study on that game for that episode. Not to mention, it's just It's just fun to watch the Rams now (laughs) because they're just an absolute threshing machine. And then finally, we got Packers Chiefs where, you know, love or hate the Chiefs. They're highly entertaining, even if they're highly inefficient. But boy, are they great TV. And then the Packers, we just talked about them. doesn't even matter who they have on the field. They're going to be a competitive team. So those are our four games on the week nine watch list. Which one are you looking most forward to looking at?
1: I think the one you're going to go to in Titans-Rams is the two sort of powerhouse teams in that list. The other ones have specific interests. Uh, Browns-Bengals, again, we would have called that game differently. We talked about that last week at the beginning of the season. Obviously, things have gone a little bit differently. Bengals are sort of surging team. Browns are still very talented, but it's a great divisional matchup. That's the interest there. Patriots-Panthers, for me, is all about defense. Like, I really want to see how each defense plays. It's not that I'm for one side or the other. Belichick has shown over and over again his ability to field a very competitive defense every week. Panthers, you did bunch of film rooms on phil snow and all the pressures and you know last year's defense last year's draft was all defense so i'm, I'm fascinated to see how that defensive struggle plays out in that one titans rams feels like the two most complete teams at the top of their games really going at each other the addition of von miller is just kind of cherry on top stuff there uh and then packers chiefs is the I- i'll call that we added that at the last minute that's the high variance game right <laughs> we would expect that packers probably win that game given current outcomes but is this the week that you know andy Reid sells everybody down the chiefs look like the chiefs of old where they're tossing up 35 without breaking a sweat and and all the packers injuries come home to roost or you know does it happen the way we think so that's the sort of uh that's the game i want to watch but i wouldn't bet on (laughs) like i wouldn't you couldn't pay me enough to bet on that game well, you probably could try me, uh, but um, <laughs> it's the 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 game I wouldn't put folding money on because I could see it happening in, in wildly different ways either way. And I'm not I'm not at all sure uh, that one of those is going to happen. So um, interesting watch list for the week. Um, what do you got coming out on film room? Is it the Rams next or is it something
0: else that you got in the can? So it'll be um, well, you're in it.
1: Oh, so uh, so oh. people should definitely
0: check it out for that. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. It's it's when uh, EJ and I had a little adventure in Las Vegas all the way back little in tiny. week one. Little tiny, And then when I was originally going to release it the first time, uh, the whole uh, John Gruden uh, oh, uh, right. situation happened. So I was like, hmm, I should probably recut this significantly. And so I did. <laughs> uh, and then uh, so that's coming out this week and it's. It's, it's just about you know the, the the experience of going to an NFL game in Las Vegas, which by itself is a whole different beast than anything I've ever experienced. And I've been to a lot of stadiums, I've been to a lot of games. That one's different. And you were there for the ride. Oh, yeah. uh, so it was great. And then um, next week, I think, is when the Rams one's coming out, especially because I want to see Vaughn plus Aaron plus Jalen do their thing and uh, probably with no Derrick Henry, I would imagine they're going to dismantle Ryan Tannehill on live television, but I guess we'll see.
1: I guess we get to hang on and and watch that, and that's the fascination of the NFL every week is on any given Sunday, right? And if either of – well, if that Rams defense comes together quickly, it's terrifying for the rest of the NFC. Mm -hmm. Like that's – ugh. I I don't envy any offensive coordinators going, huh, so – we got Aaron Donald and Von Miller probably playing on the field at the same time for the same team. What are we
0: going to do about that? With Sebastian Joseph Day. Yeah. And that's the thing. And Leonard Floyd. If
1: you go to those (laughs) second and third levels, it doesn't get a whole lot better. It's not, um, one of those teams that's super high and sort of top tier talent crust. And beneath that, there's nothing, uh, not the case with the Rams. Um, offense or defense so yeah fascinating uh this week on bears over beers uh we've got a very special guest to preview the steelers game because the steelers are up next and there are a lot of folks uh, as you know that cover the steelers in media and we we sort of went to the wayback machine got somebody that used to specialize in the steelers and is still uh very prominent in the nfl game so it's going to be a ton of fun uh that'll w- come out on friday neil Kulong
0: oh wow I haven't heard from Neil in forever yeah he's running all the podcasts uh
1: and um sort of uh I believe head editor for all the USA Today wire stuff so
0: uh, ohugby wow. Doug, Doug
1: yeah Doug Ferrars editor and Mark schofield and so shout out to Mark friend of bootleg uh who was able to reach out to Neil and say hey would you feel comfortable talking about the Steelers I know and Neil is N- Neil's been great in the pre he's he's like oh yeah absolutely I'm totally so i'm down so we'll have uh, we're gonna record that tomorrow night comes out friday uh in uh, anticipation of the bear Steelers game this weekend but that's what we've got going on and uh don't forget if you want to be in the first bootleg drawing for a hoodie uh become a patron all patrons at any level um are eligible to win the hoodie that we're going to give away next week if you are a patron by next tuesday you'll be included in the drawing yes it's the one breath's wearing um and a huge shout out to our executive
0: producers for bootleg football murat and consti um this does not fit over these headphones oh there we go there we go that's
1: that's a struggle there kenny oh they killed kenny oh there we go there we go and and, you know that would work really well if you weren't in a second story in southern california and already sweating like maybe if you were in a basement and in washington where it's chilly and rainy today that would be better but uh no good times uh so can't thank everybody enough thanks for coming along thanks for taking the ride with us it's always fun we'll be back next week to do the same thing uh with everything that happened uh, with the weekend's nfl games and uh, we'll see you then see you guys later